monetary or financial um, safety and security is absolutely something that you need to consider when you're looking for a job. But take a breath, right? Don't jump at the first opportunity if it's not an ideal fit, if you have the freedom to kind of rely on your savings a little bit while you're doing the transition out. Because I think something like 80% of veterans quit their first job within the first year. It's something insane because we are jumping at the first opportunity and it just isn't a good fit. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast. My name is John Miles, a former combat veteran and multi-industry CEO turned entrepreneur and human performance expert. Each week we showcase an inspirational person or message that helps you unlock your hidden potential and unleash your creativity and leadership abilities. Thank you for joining us today on the show and let's get igniting. Welcome leaders, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and creators of all times to the Passion Struck Podcast, where it is my job to interview high achievers and get from them the habits, the values, the changes, the alterations, how they overcame obstacles, changed their mindset, and unlocked their passion-driven life. And I've got some exciting news for you. In addition to now being rated one of the fastest growing podcasts in the world and ranked in the top 2.5% globally, we have also crossed 10,000 downloads a few weeks ago. And I am so excited and thankful for all your support. And I wanted to do call outs to those of you in Wyoming, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona for carrying a huge part of that load. Thank you for watching or listening to the show. And if you would like a specific topic or guest, please DM me at Instagram at Passionstruck Podcast and give me who you would like to hear what topics and I will do my best to get them covered in updated shows and reach out to those guests to see if they'd be willing to come on the show. Former Blue Angels pilot John Foley said, glad to be here. Those four words meant something very special to me when I was a Blue Angel. It was our mindset. It expressed our joy, our awareness, and our readiness to perform at the highest levels. It was a statement of our love, our commitment, our trust, and our respect for everyone on the Blue Angels teams, pilots, and crew alike. Each time a member of Blue Angels said, glad to be here, a special bond was reaffirmed and strengthened. And I've known John for nearly two decades, and I know for a fact that they still say, glad to be here in the Blue Angels teams to this very day. And it's that mutual respect that they have for each other that that statement has so much power. And today, I am so excited to bring another member of that team, Katie Higgins-Cook, someone I've known for a few years now, who is going to give you such a powerful interview today about how she became the first female Blue Angels pilot, and now how she is transitioning out of the Marine Corps and into civilian life. So many lessons from her today uh, about inspiration, about her time in combat, about her time in the Blue Angels and what that meant to her, how she transitioned from that and the legacy that it's carried on in her life. You're not gonna wanna miss any of it from her time at the Naval Academy to becoming a Marine and so much more. But let me tell you a little bit more about Major Katie Higgins Cook. Katie, Katie grew up in Severna Park, Maryland and attended the United States Naval Academy and later graduated from Georgetown with a Master of Arts degree in International Security. She attended TBS becoming a Marine Corps officer and earned her wings of gold a few years later. During her time on active duty, Katie deployed to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom 
as well as a deployment to Africa in support of contingency operations. Haiti joined the U.S. Navy Blue Angels in September 2014 as the first female pilot in the history of the famed demonstration squadron. She served as the aviation safety officer, followed by the officer in charge of the C-130, effectively known as Fat Albert. Her decorations include two meritorious service medals, five air medals, the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, and various personal and unit awards. She currently works as a director of sales strategy for global public sector at Salesforce. Katie is married to another Blue Angel alumni, former Major Dusty Cook, United States Marine Corps, and they have three children. Now, let's get on with this awesome interview with Katie Cook. Welcome again to the Passion Struck Podcast. And we are so excited to have with us today, Katie Higgins-Cook. Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This isn't the first time you and I have spoken, but it's the first time we've actually met on camera. So I'm so excited to get to do this with you again. And the first time uh, I got the opportunity to interview you, your interview turned out to be the largest viewed episode that year that I had done on Bold Business. And just so you know, I mean, that's with interviews that we put up with people like Jack Dorsey, Jim McKelvey, um, Satya Nadella, um, Keith Crotch, Darren McChrystal, and and you had more views. So um, so glad to have you here. And you obviously have a huge fan club, and I can understand why. Well, thank you so much. And to be in company with people like that, I still is extremely humbling. Um, but just like you said, it I have an awesome uh, fan base, if you will, that follows me on um, social media and stuff. And so I'm glad that they um, could, you know, see see the uh, work that we had before. And and I'm sure they'll be super excited to see this podcast as well. I'm going to get into it. So the purpose of Passion Struck is to help growth seekers overcome their fears and unlock their hidden potential so that they can live the purpose-driven life that they want. But everyone has a starting point before they really start their journey. And so what I wanted to start with you is, you know, I've read that you grew up in Severna Park, which is not too far away from the Naval Academy. Um, but I myself grew up not, not too far from the academy, and I remember visiting it when I was a young kid and being scared to death because of all the yelling I would hear. And I would tell my parents, "I can tell you absolutely where I am not going to go to school." And I ended up going there. So I, I'd like you to start with, you know, you're in high school and you make this, you know, decision to go to the Naval Academy, which is not an easy one because you're signing yourself up for, you know, the next ten years of your life. What was going on at that point? What made you make that step? So I am really blessed to be from a multi-generational military family. Um, both my grandfathers were pilots uh, in the Army Air Corps and then eventually the Air Force. Um, my father was a Naval Academy grad, Navy pilot. Um, so growing up, I was very close with my paternal grandfather. His family actually immigrated to the United States from Sweden. And he his family basically went from nothing to upper middle class in a 
in one generation because wow. he did 20 years in, in the Army Air Corps, right? And so he really stressed this idea of service and giving back to this country that had given so many opportunities to my family. And so I didn't know if I was going to be a firefighter, police officer. And, you know, eventually I, I even considered the nunnery at one point, but I wanted to have children and they tend to, you know, frown upon that. So uh, ultimately I, I decided to kind of follow in my father's footsteps. And that was early on in my high school career, maybe freshman year. And so everything that I did in freshman year was tailored towards making myself look competitive for the academy, getting involved in clubs and sports and grades and SAT scores and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it was still a bit intimidating um, because I knew that I was not just signing on the dotted line for the next four years like a normal college student. I was, I was signing on not only for four years, but for a five-year commitment minimum after that. And if I decided to stay in, you know, I was a 17-year-old kid making a 20, 25-year decision right then you know and it was it was a bit intimidating and um everyone who i i had had a pretty easy time in high school i was a nerd i was valedictorian i also um was a competitive swimmer and so it really wasn't until i got to the academy that i had been challenged and experienced failure really for the first time um and i was experiencing it alone right i didn't have my parents i didn't have my brother um and so it was it was definitely daunting. I can tell you on I day, my dad actually cried. Um, not, not because he didn't think I could do it, but because he remembers what the Academy was like when in the, in the first or second class of women. So he was, he was terrified for me. Um, but obviously it turned out for the best, but it was, it was definitely a challenge. Yes. Well, one of the people I think I told you about, uh, before who I've also interviewed, is astronaut, um, distinguished graduate, Captain Wendy Lawrence, who, when I was at the academy, was my physics instructor. Um, but Oh, really? Very yeah, cool. but she, she was in the second class to go through. And could you imagine being in the second class that went through and your father was the superintendent? No, I couldn't. Like, and, and my father's good friends with, with Wendy Lawrence, and so I've actually met her before, which is awesome. Um, but I, I could not imagine having your dad as the superintendent. You already have a spotlight on you. Um, but that's probably how she, you know, rose to greatness and overcame so many obstacles uh, to become an astronaut. You know, so what a what a wonderful example that she is for women like me. Well, it it's a good segue because you and she ended up taking similar paths after after getting out of the academy, you know, she went in the Navy, you ended up taking a, what I think is a more difficult path and becoming a Marine Corps officer, but she became a pilot uh, because she knew in her case that becoming a pilot was key to someday becoming an astronaut. Um, in your case, what, you know, what caused you to make that service selection? Um, and at that point in time, when you made it, you know, why did you pick Marine Corps avi Aviation over Navy Aviation? Uh, so I would say I was most greatly influenced by the Marines that I was introduced to over my summer training. Um, so for those that don't know, at the Naval Academy, you know, over the summers, you can go to a submarine or a ship or you can um, even tag along to a squadron sometimes. And and the all the Marines that I had been exposed to were extremely professional, 
were extremely knowledgeable in, in their job set and their MOS, as we call it, mission of specialty. Um, and I just felt like they were dedicated and to these principles of, you know, honor, courage, and commitment that motivated me so much to go to the academy. And so I knew that I wanted to lead those types of people. And so my decision to be a Marine really came before I decided that I wanted to be a pilot. So when I did my service selection, I actually put Marine Air, Marine Ground, the Navy Air. Obviously, being a pilot is something that I was passionate about because um, my par- my grandfathers did it, my father did it, and it was something that I was obviously very interested in. But being a Marine at the time was more important than flying if, if I had to make the choice. Um, luckily, I got to do both, right? Be a Marine pilot. Um, but I can tell you, I felt adversity like right from the beginning. As soon as I selected Marine Corps, there were classmates of mine at the academy telling me like, there's no way that I was going to do it. That Chesty Puller would be rolling over in his <laughs> grave or, you know, even more uh, bullying than that. Like, oh, someone's going to throw a grenade in your tent because you're going to be a terrible officer. Like it, it got to be like pretty bad bullying for me. And um, you know, I just took that upon myself to prove them all wrong, right? And and I went to the basic school, which is our six-month course that all Marine Corps officers have to go to. And I'm not saying it was a cakewalk at all. I did pretty well academically and in land nav, which are two big things that we do. Um, but I definitely struggled with some of the physical aspects there. I'm I'm small, smaller, you know, in stature. And so carrying a 70-pound pack is not easy, especially if you haven't done it a lot growing up. And so on the weekends, I took time to literally wear my pack and walk on a treadmill um, so that I could, you know, make myself better and overcome these kind of shortcomings that I had so that I could prove all these people wrong. Um, And so, yeah, it was it was a challenge, but it was um, it was something that helped build resiliency in myself, helped uh, fortitude and just gave me a boldness that I would say that I didn't have. Choosing Marine Corps was definitely deviating from my family passes. We were a, a Navy family. My dad was in the Navy. Um, and so the Marine Corps was what I saw as the harder way as well. And I, and I wanted to do that. And I wanted to show people that I had, had the uh, capability of doing that. I'm, I'm third generation uh, military myself. My my uh, grandfather was actually a pilot, but was oh, cool. in, but was in, uh, he was an army officer in the airborne uh, division initially, and then ended up uh, because of his degrees, getting recruited to go to uh, Fort Detrick, uh, where he was part of uh, the programs that were going on there. And then my father is a combat um, Marine and he ended up being a frogman in the Marine Corps. So when wow. he, when he came into the service in 56-ish time frame, they were just restarting Force Recon. And so there was no Force Recon school, so they sent him to UDT school. And so he was, wow. I believe, class of 16. But, you know, I would say... Did he say get to I, wear I, the Triton? Did he get to wear the Triton? No, he, he does not. Oh. <laughs> Although my friends who are, you know, who went to Bud's and our SEALs, you know, have great respect for what he did and... um. So I think that's a great story. And he went on to serve in in the Korea War and then early stages of uh, Vietnam War where he ended up getting, unfortunately, injured doing his job. But uh, 
nevertheless, um, he told me a lot about what it was like going through Marine Corps boot camp. Um, and I know like the Naval Academy, all these things change and adapt over time. But what I really wanted to ask you was when you went both into the Naval Academy and then became a Marine, were the fears you thought you were going to have to overcome the same fears that you ended up having to go through or were they different? I would say that for the most part, they were the same. And, and it's because I would say I, I have always been, I would say a strength of mine is introspection. I, I try to do a lot of introspection and, and acknowledge where my actual shortcomings are. And so I knew going into the basic school that I was going to do well academically, um, but that I was going to struggle physically. Um, and so I think that, uh, that was pretty, it matched my kind of expectations, my fears did as, and then, you know, the subsequent actions I had to take to overcome those shortcomings that I had. Um, at the Naval Academy, I would say it was a little bit different. I, I was always good at uh, academics and that was the first place that I went where I actually like ever failed a test. I ever had to get tutoring or anything like that. Um, it's a bit so harder years, than people. Yeah. It's a bit harder than people think. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And you know, like I said, I was valedictorian in my high school class. And so I had pretty good SAT scores. So I wasn't a dummy or, or anything like that. And so, you know, coming into uh, the Naval Academy, I thought I was going to coast through again and just learn, you know, leadership lessons and how to be a good officer, you know, and instead it was struggling, uh, especially my plebe year. Chemistry kicked my butt. Um, I was happy to move on to physics. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, I, I would say that was a fear that I didn't have that was kind of blindsiding, right? And, and I would say that those are the fears that are harder are the ones that come out of nowhere, right? The ones that you already kind of have in the back of your mind are going to come to fruition. You're preparing yourself. You're, you're preparing or fort, fortifying yourself for that to happen. Worst case scenario, right? It's the ones that you're not prepared for that you're, then you're like scrambling to make a plan to, to figure out how you're going to go over, get over these uh, shortcomings or these, you know, obstacles in front of you. So I, I would say Naval Academy was, was harder in that aspect. And, you know, I think, what you said there is is very true is that you know when you're looking at the reality that you're facing there's things that are right there in front of you and then as you start to peel the onion so to speak different obstacles or hurdles will come up so for the listener out there what's a piece of advice you would give them for facing those those you know fears or obstacles that come out of nowhere and and what did you do to overcome them and so I get this question sometimes, um, and I always say the same phrase, and that's calm seas don't make a skilled sailor. And so it's not those easy times in your life, right? It's not the calm seas, the smooth sailing where everything's going the way that you want it to that shape you as a person. It is those obstacles, those fears, those hard times, those failures that shape you as a person and shape you as a mom, as an officer, as um a doctor, a lawyer, whatever you plan to do, they shape you. And how you deal with that failure is going to decide if, if, um, if, if it's going to wreck you or it's going to fortify you, right? And so 
um, I would say you need to take every hard uh, hardship or you need to take every obstacle as a learning opportunity, right? If we go into everything surrounded with fear, then um, that's not a very enjoyable life to live, right? If you go into every situation, even if it's daunting with and view it rather through a lens, and it may be kind of a rose-colored lens, but you view it through a lens of a learning opportunity, then anything that comes out of that, you can put in your toolbox for the future. Even if I fail, hey, I messed up these three things, I'm not going to ever do that again, and I learned from this experience. Or I did these three things really great, I'm going to repeat that in the future. And so viewing things not as a potential to fail, but viewing things as a potential to learn is a mindset that you can change and, and is uh, really critical, I think, to, to overcoming hardship or fear or obstacles. That is such a great point. Um, and there are so many who get in this trap where they don't take on an initiative or something laid out before them because they think, I haven't done it before. But the reality is, is with the internet and with the people you can get in contact, as long as you're willing to have that willingness to learn, mm -hmm. you can do it. You can overcome that fixed perception that you have and you can start saying yes to things that maybe today you're saying no to. So I, so I, I have to, to tell you a little bit of a story. Um, when I was at the academy, I did maybe a similar program you did um, because I was thinking about going Marine Corps. It was called Devil Dog. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if they call it the same thing anymore, but I remember starting it out. We went to Cherry Point and we were with, uh, for those of you who don't know Cherry Point, it's where the air wing for the Marine Corps is. Um, and I was like, this is great. <laughs> um, you know, we got to go into simulators. I got to ride in a Harrier. Um, you know, and the air wing is very much different in some ways from, you know, being a grunt in the Marine Corps. Um, but in retrospect, it was a good introduction because when we went to Camp Lejeune, the next thing I knew, we were in an infantry um, platoon. And literally the second day I was there, we got to do a 15 mile force march with, you know, the 70 pound sack. Yep. And at this, at this point, I think it was my youngster or sophomore summer, maybe I've got it wrong, maybe it was junior, but I, I was in good, good shape. I was a couple sport varsity athlete, but going on a forced march when you're not used to it, I, mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how sore I was the yep. next day. And my mindset the whole time was I wanted to quit so bad, but yep. I did not want to let anyone know that I couldn't complete. I, I, you know, I just stuck the whole thing out and got this mindset that no matter how many blisters I get, things are going to get better if I can just make it through and I'll at least earn a little bit of their respect. Um, yep. So you, you come out of, you know, you getting your gold wings and you originally, you know, I think trained as a tanker pilot. Do yep, I have that correct? Yeah. Yep, that's right. And um, in the Marine Corps, our uh, C-130s actually do a, a bunch of different missions. So uh, aerial refueling is part of that. But we also, you know, drop people and things out the back. Or we call it aerial delivery. I was also on an aircraft that had um, Hellfire and Griffin missiles on it. So we do close air support as well, which is what I did predominantly on my first 
um, deployment. And then obviously we, we run cargo and things like that as well. And so we, we do kind of a litany of stuff, unlike the Air Force that is a little bit more siloed and uh, mission specific in their, in their uh, squadron. Okay. So as you were taking this path, and then I, I, I'm going to ask you a question about your, your combat experience in Afghanistan. As you were taking this path along, um, did you have guides or mentors that were helping you kind of with your career? Or at this point, were you kind of on autopilot? Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities, from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to passionstruck. Um, well, in the beginning, there is kind of a set path, right? There, in flight school, we go through the same path that you did with the, the aviation pre-indoctrination, the API, and then you go to primary, then you go to advanced, then you get your wings, then you go to your first squadron, go through um, the FRS or the fleet replacement squadron, and where you get trained in your actual aircraft, C-130s, we don't have that. Ours is all in a sim. Um, and so I went, I went to our sim training to learn how to fly a C-130. Um, and then, and then checked into my squadron. Um, and then once you're into the squadron, all it is about getting qualifications, moving from 3P, which is a brand new co-pilot to 2P, which is an experienced co-pilot to aircraft commander. And then in there, you're also getting your uh, specialized qualifications and mission sets like uh, basic instructor pilot or um, instructing uh, night systems, instructing tactical navigation, all that stuff. And so there is kind of a set path that you go on. And I really didn't have too much of a Marine Corps specific mentor until I had done maybe one, my first or second deployment. And that's when I started having more, more senior officers, kind of, uh, like my old COs actually uh, helped me uh, decide what I wanted to do next and, and what was a, a good move for me. Um, but I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a military kid. And so I luckily had this example of a of an officer, a great officer in my father growing up. And so him being a pilot, even in flight school, I could call him and be like, dad, this PAR is kicking my butt. What should I do? And he's, you know, and we can talk pilot stuff like, oh, set the 
set your descent angle to this and try this, you know? Right. And so it, it was, it was just awesome to be able to bounce, not only flying things uh, um, off of him, you know, but being able to talk officership and leadership and um, how to mentor people and how to deal with conflict and all of the, those type of things. And, and luckily I had that example growing up and, and I still have it today. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for that. And, and so he, he's always been my mentor from the beginning. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one -on -one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com coaching right now and let's get igniting. So you end up getting deployed to Afghanistan. And, and when I read your, your uh, about you, you have about 1,400 flight hours in the military, but uh, over a third of them are in combat. So, you know, for the listener who's out there who, you know, many listeners will be veterans, but for those who are not, how is, you know, being deployed and being in the combat situation different than normal day in the squadron? Uh, so I would say, um, obviously the stakes are a little bit higher in combat because there's, um, obviously someone who doesn't want you to be there. Uh, it, while, it, while it, when you're flying friendly skies, it's, you know, a little bit more laid back. You know, in both environments, there's things that could kill you, right? Accidents happen all the time, um, unfortunately. And so you have to be on your guard in, in both cases. Um, but I would say in combat, there's no turning the mind off. There's no, hey, the day's done. I can go home, sit on my couch and veg and watch TV, right? Because you could be in your can or, or your uh, rack, if you will, um, and a, a missile attack comes in and now you're putting on your flak and you're going outside and getting right. a bunker. So there's no turning your mind off in a combat zone. There's no re like truly relaxing. You could do some fun stuff and don't worry. I binge watched West wing on my first deployment and it got me through it. Um, but you, you're always kind of on, on your guard. And so, um, and, and the stakes are so much higher for the people that you're supporting when you're in country, you know, it's all, or excuse me, when you're, at home in garrison, you're, you're like running parts for people, or you might be giving gas, but you know, it's in a um, training environment, right? Like the accidents can still happen, but it's um, no one is dying from enemy action, obviously in combat, especially when we were on our close air support missions, like the, um, I even now talking about it, the adrenaline starting to go in my body, right? Because you, when someone reads you a nine line and you're getting ready to shoot a missile at, at some bad guys that are pinning down American forces, like you can't fail there because that's someone's dad and brother or sister or mother, you know, and 
and they're Americans. And that's why you're an aviator is to support those people on the ground. And that's how we fight as a MAGCAP in the Marine Corps. And so to be able to do that um, was my, my greatest um, achievement, I would say, in my career was being able to help those people on the ground. And so that's really, really the difference is the, is the stakes are so much higher in combat. Yeah, I can agree more. Um, and, and I've had a number of, of different experiences, but, you know, I'll just bring one of my own. I happen to be on the, the USS Kidd, uh, which is now de- decommissioned, but was a, um, I taught, they call it the Ayatollah class because they were, we were going to give four destroyers to Iran and then ended up not doing the deal. Uh, so they always carried that name, but they were um, a bit more sophisticated than at that time, the Spruance destroyers. And we were off the coast of Bosnia at that time. It was the Bosnian conflict and the Yugo- former Yugoslavian Navy had these OSA-1 uh, patrol craft that on the surface you wouldn't think could do much damage, but they carried Russian uh, Scud missiles on them. And as I'm mm-hmm. sitting watch in the CIC, um, all of a sudden we're lit up by not one, but two um, of these OSA-1s. And all of a sudden, you know, we get indications that their missile doors are coming open. I immediately declare, you know, general quarters. And then it's as if time stops um, for mm-hmm. a second because so many things are going through your mind. And um, at the time, I happened to be the um, cryptologic slash intelligence officer on board. And so the commanding officer comes in and says, you know, Ensign Miles, what do you think the intent is, you, you know, because we have either we're going to sit there and do nothing or he's going to take action. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had to make an educated guess based on, you know, the intelligence we had been seeing. And I, I said, you know, I just went with my gut and I said, sir, I think this is just a show of force and they're not going to do anything. And they ended up not doing anything. But, you know, what's running through your head is, you know, if we take action, we're going to kill people on those ships. If I don't mm-hmm. take action, people on our ship could get hurt. But yep. you're having to make, you know, life or death decisions in seconds, literally. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's, it's, it's just hard to relate to people who haven't been in the military and haven't been in that, that dogfight. So for sure. So you come out of, you know, these, these tours and you also did one in, uh, in Africa, something I, I share with you. I think we were both doing contingency operations when we were there. Um, but how did you get this opportunity or how did the blue angels even get on, get on the horizon for you? So I was actually um, on my second deployment in Africa and uh, to be able to apply to the Blue Angels, you have to have a certain amount of flight hours, or at least they like you to. Um, you have to be an aircraft commander and all this stuff. And and because I did my deployment to um, a- Afghanistan, I got a ton of hours in a very short amount of time. And then I came home, I upgraded to aircraft commander, and then I immediately deployed again on this deployment to Africa. And so because I did two deployments basically back to back, I had the hours that I, I needed to to apply. And so um, the M1 or the lead Fat Albert pilot at the time reached out to me via social media and was like, hey, would you be interested in applying? And of course, you know, the spotty African uh, internet that I had there, um, I uploaded my application 
um, and sent it to them. And then uh, what's required of applying for the Blue Angels is actually attending two shows. We call it, we used to call it rush season. I don't think we're allowed to call it that anymore, but applicant season um, is where you'd have to go to two shows. And not only are you getting kind of a behind the scenes look of what they have to do every day, um, but you're also getting to know them and they're getting to know you because, you know, you're on the road 300 days out of the year with these people. And if your personalities don't mesh, then you don't want to be uh, – a thorn in their side or that they and yours, you know, for that long. And so you really need to get to know the people and see if this is really what you want to do. And so when I came back from my second deployment, literally before I even saw my family, I did two shows back to back because the applicant season was ending and they're the last two shows. So to be even eligible, I had to do these shows back to back. Um, and then, uh, I went into finalist week, I, which is basically a week in July during their um, Pensacola beach show where you get to know them and their spouses. You take your picture, uh, your official photo in case you get selected, you get fitted for your blue suit and all of the other stuff that you get. I um, mean, you get to know like the other right. um, people who are rushing. And so um, at the end, you do a formal interview and then you go home and you call the boss on that Friday to find out if you made the team or not. And so luckily I did. Um, and kind of the rest is history. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have even have applied if it wasn't for M1 at the time reaching out to me to apply. He knew me and my um, reputation in the airplane. Uh, I was relatively junior, you know, I, I had pinned on captain maybe two years prior, while most people who went to the Blues were, you know, very senior captains, if not majors already by the time that they went. Um, and actually two people that I know who have been on the team actually pinned on Lieutenant Colonel while they were wow. flying Fat Albert. And so I, as you can imagine, I was very, very junior. And so I could have waited a couple more years. I could have done a whole nother tour and then applied for the Blues. Um, but this uh, M1 really encouraged me to do it. And so I did. And, you know, like I said, the rest is history. Yeah. So, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, and, and being a first. Um, so when you were going through this audition, because that's really what it was, yeah. um, because so, so much of what you guys do, um, and I'll get into that a little bit, because I, I have a friend who was um, was one of the soloists in the teams. Um it, it's so much of it depends upon teamwork and that bond that, that the team has together. And as you were going through this interview process, were you the only female who was in the selection process or were you competing against other females as well for the slot? Uh, I was the only female pilot. Um, there, there was no other female pilot um, during, during the finalist part. There was a F-18 female pilot earlier on in the selection, but she didn't make the finalist my year. Um, I think she reapplied a, a couple years. She reapplied while I was actually on the team and she got all the way to the finalist and then wasn't selected. So there have been a couple women that have been in the pipeline um, or have been, you know, almost on the team, but I was the only female pilot while I was being selected. Okay. And, and I've been lucky enough to get some rides in, uh, you know, F-18s and F-14s, and it's a, it's a fun time. But um, looking at some of your Instagram pictures, it, it looked like you got to get a ride when they were actually doing either a practice or a show, uh, which must have been a completely different type of experience. Well, actually, so um, 
three months out of the year, January to March, we actually go to El Centro, California, and that's where we do all of our winter training. Um, so all the new pilots do, uh, they start out, you know, very basic and then they advance to the diamond and then they advance to the Delta, which is all six um, planes together. But what some people don't know is uh, our, our uh, second year pilots. So uh, number five and number uh, and then whoever's the senior pilot out of two, three and four, um, sometimes will fly people in the back. They usually are active duty individuals. Um, and so to be able to train uh, having someone in the back, they would put the Fat Albert pilots in the back during winter training uh, to get used to having someone back there. Because imagine the type of Gs that they're pulling without a G suit. They need to vocalize or prepare the person in the back. So, hey, Gs are coming on now. Hey, do your hick maneuver. Hey, we're going to be turning uh, a full 360. And so to, to teach them to to start talking out loud and preparing people in the back, we would be their guinea pig, right? And so if they tried to black you out because they didn't give you a warning, you, you could give them some feedback that was like, hey, next time, give me a warning. And so we were just kind right. of the guinea pigs when Fat Albert was um, in phase. So she was in maintenance for the first part of, of the first three months that we're there. Um, and then we start our our training in the in the back half. But yeah, so I, I got to fly all the time in um, El Centro, which was great. And then occasionally if, um, if we took all three pilots on the road and I wasn't flying the Fat Albert show, I would get to go in an actual show, which was great too. That's fantastic. Well, one of the questions I had is when you're seeing them perform, you, you think that this is this extremely sophisticated computerized thing that's going on. And my understanding from my friend, and maybe it's changed, is that they're doing a lot of these maneuvers by using a stopwatch that's in each of the planes, or that's how they used to do it. So they do a lot of that for sure. It's not, well, I can't speak to the Super Hornet that is just coming online this year. My experience is with the Baby Hornet or the Legacy Hornet, um, but under the Legacy Hornet, a lot of it is visual. It is uh, stopwatches. They actually pick points on the ground. You know, hey, the the Dick Sporting Goods or, you know, the Walmart or the Water Tower. These are like visual references for them. And then they also have visual references on each other, partic particularly, and anyone who's flown formation knows this, but uh, you can line up like, hey, I'm going to line up my vertical stab with number two's you know, canopy bow or whatever it is to, to make the reference correct or the, the distance between them correct. And so they have these kind of, it's very, very visual for them. Um, and that's unfortunately why you, um, there is an accident several years ago where, um, you know, both with the Thunderbirds and with the Blues where multiple people are, are unfortunately killed because your wingmen are literally looking at boss or, lo or looking at somebody else not looking at the ground because they're just trying to get visual references. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's crazy that with all this technology and our stealth capability and the cool stuff that you see with the F-35 and the F-22, none of that is going on in the blues and they don't even wear G suits. Um, they actually, to take some of the play out of the stick, they actually have a 45 pound spring that goes onto the bottom. And so they're doing like a 45 pound curl the whole time. And that takes kind of the play out of the, it's crazy, the amount of uh, strength that they have and, um, you know, endurance that they have. So it's, it's pretty crazy. That's incredible. Well, 
the pilot I knew flew many years before you. It was, uh, it was a gentleman named John Foley. And I remember him telling me that one of the main sayings that they had for the angels was, glad to be here. And I was wondering if while you were part of the team, that was still their slogan and what that slogan really meant, because I think this camaraderie and mindset that we're talking about is all wrapped into this saying. Yep. So glad to be here is still definitely used. And generally it comes um, during debriefing. And so one key thing about the blues, if you don't know, is that we brief, we debrief um, about two hours after every show. And really in this debrief, you're calling yourself out on everything that you did wrong. And, and that's really key there is you're calling yourself out. It's your introspection. There's no one else sitting there saying like, well, you missed this and you did that. Yes, you have um, the guys who are at the, the cart that can kind of grade you, but you're the one in the airplane that knows like, oh, I, I overbanked to 60 two degrees instead of 60 degrees. Like you're the one who knows that and you call yourself out about that. Um, and so when you get all the way to the end, you end your spiel with glad to be here, boss, or glad to be here. And I think um, sometimes you can tell like in a very heated discussion about whatever um, people can use it as like glad to be here, you know, it can be right. kind of, you know, sarcastic or whatever, but you're recaging your brain at the end that being a blue angel, even the worst day on the blue angels is still a privilege, right? I am glad to be a part of this team. I'm glad to represent those men and women who serve and are overseas. I'm glad to bring attention um, to those that are still serving when, you know, on the 24 hour news cycles, you know, people forget that we still have forces in Afghanistan. We have forces in Syria and Iraq. We have people that are deployed on ships all over the world that can't be home with their families on the holidays. And so it is a privilege to wear this blue suit, fly this airplane at 40 feet off the ground at 320 knots, and to be able to represent those women and the pride and professionalism of the Navy and Marine Corps. And so that phrase at the end recages your brain to say, you know, it is a privilege. Okay. Well, well, thank you for that. And so when we last spoke, um, it was a few years ago, and you had just pinned on major at the time, and were, I, I think, leading uh, officer in charge of a base at this point, but you had made the decision to um, leave the Marine Corps. And so for the listeners out there, uh, many who may be veterans, you know, I wanted to, for you to, to talk about what was going in your mind at that point in time. And, you know, before we get into, you know, making the transition, you know, I wanted to go into what was your mindset about making the decision to leave the Marine Corps? So I would say it was probably the scariest thing that I had done in my life up to that point. And mind you, I have a lot of hours in combat. I have, um, you know, fired missiles and, and taken the lives of people, but uh, that decision to get out of the Marine Corps was the scariest one that I had done because, you know, I grew up as a military child. So my dad was active duty through the time I was at the Academy. So I had never been to a civilian hospital, right? I didn't know how to get health insurance, which is I, like these basic adult things. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, right? What am I going to do on the outside? What skills do I have even translate? 
you know, what, um, where do I want to live? You know, it's so all of these things, it was extremely daunting. Like, how do I be a functioning adult if I'm not wearing a uniform? Um, and I was scared of, of leaving a career that was promising, right? I, I maybe could have gone on to be a squadron commander, or maybe I could have gone to be a WTI. Maybe I could deploy again. I was leaving something that I knew I was good at to completely reinvent myself into a, an uncertain future. And the decision that drove me or the factors that drove me to actually get out were my children. Um, you know, when I was on the blues, when I deployed all of that, I was, you know, alone and unafraid. I didn't have people right. that relied on me. And so now I had two children on active duty when I was the commander of MWSS 271, the uh, air operations company commander at, at 271. Um, I had two children back to back there. Um, I just recently had my third child uh, about uh, six congratulations. Ago, Thank you so much. But um, I knew if I was to deploy again, now that I was a mother, knowing myself and my shortcomings by doing some introspection, that if I was to deploy um, in in the manner that I had been previously, that I would not be able to compartmentalize effectively at that point, right? My I needed to focus all my time and attention on my Marines and the mission at hand while I was deployed. Um, and that's not fair to my children because I would be ignoring them. And then on the flip side, uh, I, if I'm worried about my kids all the time in a combat zone, then I'm not mission focused and that can put people at risk. And so um, I didn't think that anyone would get the best version of me at that point. Um, I still wanted to serve. I still love my country. I still love flying. I still love the Marine Corps. But um, I needed to be more involved in my children's life than I was having the opportunity to to. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some amazing parents that are active duty out there. There are single moms and single dads out there that are able to do it and more power to them. And I respect them so much and they must have an amazing uh, support system to be able to do that and and to support their child. And I just, my heart couldn't do it to my kids. And so um, I decided to transition out. I'm still a uh, reservist though. Um, and, And I've been, I can happily say that I am really enjoy the time that I have with my children that I probably would not have been able to have if I had stayed active TV. Okay. Thank Thank you for that. And I, I know uh, when I was getting off active duty and my circumstances were a little bit different because at first I had uh, been given uh, the opportunity to become a special agent with the FBI, but unfortunately that got uh, curtailed due, due to some congressional funding issues and literally overnight, I was left in a situation where, you know, I had to find a job and didn't know where to start. And, mm. you know, for me, if it wasn't for back in the day, we had this um, like that thick of a document that had um, all the service, all the service academy graduates name in it. And I just happened mm. to call a woman who was at Booz Allen and luckily mm. she uh, brought me in, but the transition was just horrendous um, from my recollection. And so I wanted to ask, you know, now that you've been through this and, you know, initially you were going, you were joining an energy company and now you're with uh, Salesforce, but what advice do you have to transitioning veterans about the process and what you might do differently? So the, the process is not easy. So when someone's struggling in the process, 
um, they need to know that they're not alone, right? I think that's why we have such high suicide rates, unfortunately, amongst veterans is they think that they're unique in their circumstance and they are not. They absolutely are not. Even someone who is uh, successful or has some notoriety, in my case, I struggled. Um, yes, I did uh, go work for a, an energy company for a very short time. It wasn't a great fit. Um, and then I restarted the the job search and ultimately landed with this amazing company that I'm with now. But I would say one of the hardest things is figuring out what you're worth, right? That's really hard to figure out because the, the military or the Congress tells you what you're getting paid at each rank, right? When you go out and you try to translate what you did as a Marine to civilian speak on your resume, you're like, do I... Am I worth what a Lance Corporal gets paid or am I worth what a major gets paid? I don't know, you know, and so that's that's a really difficult conversation. And in the civilian world, a lot of things around money and compensation are either uh, faux pas to talk about or they legally can't. And so getting some, uh, you know, direction there is, is really hard and, and it really comes from networking and getting some advice from people who have gone before you. And then the other part of it, I would say is, even though I just went through this spiel about money is money isn't the end all be all. And I fell into that trap. And I think a lot of Marines do. And a lot of military does is they're literally like, I don't care if I'm a, a custodian. I don't care if I work logis logistics. I don't care if I work the midnight shift. I don't care. I just need to have a paycheck because I need to support my family. And so I'm going to take the first opportunity that I think is uh, I could survive. Right. I survived three to right. five years at, at each duty station when I was um, active duty. I can survive anything. But that's the beauty of being a civilian is you have a lot of, of freedom to decide your own adventure. Right. With the Marine Corps, not so much that my detailer tells me where I'm going or my monitor tells me where I'm going. And so I would encourage people. Yes. A, a monetary or financial um safety and security is absolutely something that you need to consider when you're looking for a job, but take a breath, right? Don't jump at the first opportunity if it's not an ideal fit, if you have the freedom to kind of rely on your savings a little bit while you're doing the transition out. Because I think something like 80% of veterans quit their first job within the first year. It's something insane because we are jumping at the first opportunity and it just isn't a good fit. Um, and so uh, that, that's, that would be my first, um, my first recommendation. My second one is TRS and these transition classes are not great resources a lot of times. Um, and so networking, LinkedIn, find other people that, that have gotten out that you knew from your service. Networking can get you referrals into certain companies that you want to apply for. They can, you can reach out to these people like, how is the company culture? Should I even apply for this job? And so networking gets you so much further than um, just, you know, randomly sending your resume out online. So, so that's definitely my, my second recommendation. People who are transitioning overall are one of the main things that uh, I, I end up helping with and, and veterans, of, of course, as well. And I think some of the points that you brought up are, are great ones. I think so often we're in a panic and a rush to make a decision because once, you know, once you make that decision, those months go by in a flash before you're actually getting out. Um, 
And so, you know, in, in many cases, I try to start working with them then. But if not, even when they get out, I try to take a step back and really analyze, you know, what brings them, you know, passion in their life. You know, what are the things that they like to do? Because you, you know, most of the time people leave companies um, because of the culture. And when you're coming out of the military, you're used to a certain culture. And I think that there are certainly companies, you know, Amazon is one um, that do a much better job of understanding um, and hiring specifically veterans than other companies. So that's, that's one part of it. But um, I see so many people get out. They want to get an MBA, which I'm saying, not saying is, is a bad thing. Education is always good, but often what they really want to do in life and what that MBA and they're spending all this money to attain are completely different. And so to me, the, I've always thought that the starting point is, you know, let's figure out what you're really passionate about. You know, mm-hmm. what, what were you really good at? And then how do you apply that? Because at that point, making the step to be an entrepreneur in some ways might be less risky than going into an unsuccessful job and yep. the negative consequences of the mind that, that come with that. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that you ended up getting into such an amazing company as Salesforce. Um, you know, I think we've talked about it previously, but I, you know, I have been working in one way or another with the company for almost 20 years. And um, I remember um, having a discussion in the very early days, they might've been in year four or five with Parker Harris, who was one of the founders. And at this point, they had thousands of companies on the platform and the CIA was putting out a contract because they were going to start using a cloud-based system. And at the time I was CIO at Dell and he came to me for advice because we had uh, government clients and I'm like, Parker, this is never going to work the way you've got it architected because all your data is commingled in one shape or another, and they're going to want a separate instance. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. He's like, we're going to have to re-architect the whole thing. And um, they ended up doing the work and doing it and doing that. And you now see, uh, along with all the acquisitions that have been made, you know, how much that company has grown. So congratulations to you on on that journey. Katie, before we get into the next segment, which will be a rapid round of questions, which I think you will thoroughly enjoy. Um, I wanted to ask um, for those listeners who are out there who want to learn more about you or might want to hire you to speak for them, because I know you do a lot of speaking engagements, where can they find you? Yep. So thanks so much for uh, mentioning that. My, my website is katieannecook.com and that's K-A-T-I-E-A-N-N-C-O-O-K.com. So uh, if you want to go there, you can uh, see some of the uh, previous talks that I've done, some of the uh, different clientele that I've served, and you can reach out uh, on a, on the website there if you're looking to to have me come to any of your events. I can also do uh, virtual events uh, as well. And uh, yeah, I, w- I look forward to um, supporting in any way that I can. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to go through a series of quick questions. And I would okay. like the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. The hardest thing about being a mom is? Bodily fluids. <laughs> 
If you could meet one person alive or dead who you've never met, who would it be? Sally Ride. You somehow were on the Mission to Mars crew, and one of the things that you were able to do once you got there was to establish one law that you could put in place. What might that be? I would say it would be uh, protecting, establishing protected um, groups of people from hiring uh, discrimination. Okay. So gender, race, se sexual orientation, pregnancy, handicap, whatever it is, having establishing a law to uh, protect people against hiring discriminatory hiring all the way in the beginning. So when we start building it up, we're we're good. Okay. Well, you've accomplished so many great things, but everyone has a kryptonite. What is yours? My kryptonite is sweet, particularly the funfetti cake from Publix. It's my favorite. <laughs> and I'm not sure you can even get that where you live now. No. Nope. Um, <laughs> I can, so I'll have to check that out. Um, now that you've lived in Texas a little bit, what are three words that describe Texas? Huge, obnoxiously prideful. <laughs> I think that's two together. So if you, if you want to count that as my three, obnoxiously prideful and, and huge. Okay. And, um, what was it like? the first time you were on Fat Albert and got to do that explosive takeoff, what, what one word describes that? Um, we actually didn't get to do the Jado takeoff because all those bottles were destroyed in a hurricane. But the first time that you do the low transition, um, I would say is uh, hyper-focused is what it feels like because you're, you're literally flying at five feet above the ground. And so you're, you can't let any of the like bad stuff creep into your mind. So I, I would say I was hyper-focused the first time I did it. And your favorite type of music to work out to? Uh, I like uh, high-tempoed pop, pop music, like the top 40 or something. That, but it has to be high-tempoed or I get distracted. <laughs> <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. And I really appreciate you doing this episode and think there's so much here that the listeners can learn from and um, also look to you with aspiration for all that you've accomplished. And I think we're just at the starting point of what you're going to accomplish. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm, I had such a great time and it's great to connect with you again. And uh, I really appreciate all of your listeners out there uh, taking the time to uh, entertain my story. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Katie Cook as much as I did. Wow, does she not disappoint. So much to unpack and learn from her. And in the future, I have more inspiring guests just like her coming on the show. I also have some great solo episodes coming up. One on the power of choice and why it is so important if you are a leader, an entrepreneur, creator, or a visionary of any type. Power of choice can make the difference between succeeding or failure. And I know this personally, and I've seen it happen again and again through the choices that we've made. I want to thank you all again for making the show such a success. And I would ask you 
But please, if you love one of these episodes, please give us a five-star rating. Please send this to your friends. And you can always DM me on Instagram at Passion Truck Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, on my personal page there, or you can contact me on LinkedIn at John R. Miles. I appreciate your support so much, and you are making a huge difference to helping us make passion go viral for millions worldwide. Thank you, and I can't wait for you to join us on the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral, and we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show, and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 